Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Pastor. Um, yes, Heather and I uh, came up uh, to celebrate um, the uh, homegoing of uh, Sandy Blanchard, and that was awesome. We also were able to witness uh, the coming together to, to become one of Dakota Gurink and Kelsey Ochterhoff on Thursday and Friday, and uh, we get to be with you here today. So it's been a great uh, four days together. Unfortunately, I've got to leave afterwards. Heather's going to stick around, but... Uh, kind of on the lower end of the totem pole with uh, FCA as a director for the number of years I've been there, and I have to go back to work. So, <clears throat> um, so uh, we'll really cherish the time that I could have with you after this hour. And we finish a little early. We'll probably start a little bit earlier in the second hour. And uh, there are more boxes of moon pies. Let me just let you know that as well. All right? Um, so... Um, a lot of things, a lot of things happen, a lot of catching up to do, but that's really not our purpose here. The high point of worship is the Word of God and His revelation, so we've got to get to that pretty quickly. But just a couple of quick shout-outs, you know, hey to Rose and Doug Kazir, who wanted to be here but couldn't be here because they're in North Carolina. Another shout-out from Hank and Marge Knable. Everybody remember Hank and Marge Knable, who moved down to Dry Ridge, Kentucky, Okay, so they live in a house that's kind of in these undulating hills of grass and everything like that, and, and you've got to really go a long way from their house to find a grocery store or a gas station. They live among many donkeys and goats and chickens and a few humans, but very few. And uh, they're down in Dry Ridge, and they're watching here this morning. And I want to do another um, shout-out to my dear brother, Mike McHoney. Uh, he is in a battle right now uh, in his own life. And so I called him and I said, I want you to come on and watch the live stream this morning. And this is a brother that I dearly love that I would fight alongside um, at any time. And I want to reach out to him and his wife and tell them that I love them just so, so much. And then uh, when I was let you know, we had a great time. What was it, Heather? It was Friday morning. Um, that we went and played disc golf with several families and some of the boys and, and young ladies and got to um, enjoy playing disc golf with them. And that's a ministry that I've kept up. And my first disc golf community Bible study down there is, is this coming Thursday. Uh, so uh, coming up quick uh, for me to gather some of the students from the local schools and to bring them together right about four-tenths of a mile from my house where we have a disc golf course. So that's going on as well. If I haven't said hello to you, and especially if you're not hearing from us, if you want communication from us, we send out electronic communication and print communication, and we learned, hey, some people don't do electronic communication, that we need to send more print, and uh, we'll do that. But if you're not getting electronic communication from us in the form of text messages or, uh, or emails, uh, do let me and, and Heather know, and we'd love to do that um, and keep in touch with you, all right? So we say praise the Lord. Glad to be here this morning. Glad to see all of you. Let me pray as we go into the first of this series on Jehovah Nisi, that the Lord God, my banner, the Lord God, our banner of the I Am series. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven now, we, 
wish to encounter you and your word. We wish to, um, I wish to be your servant and be led by your Holy Spirit, controlled by your Holy Spirit. So only those things that you would wish communicated to the hearts and minds and souls of these believers here so that we could grow in faith, that we could be nourished by your word, that we could, we could be called to the proper battles in the right battlefields with the right petition, with the right posture in the correct position. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us. For those of us who think our enemies are too big and our strength is too small, Father, change our minds this morning. For those of us who right now are playing in survival mode and we're running from enemies and we're hiding out instead of going to the proper battlefields, Father, change our minds. For those of us here this morning, Father, who are fighting the wrong battles and you need to move us to a different battle front, Father, I pray that we would drop our battles. For those of us today that have the spirit of a battler but we don't have the gentleness, the kindness, the meekness, the sincerity, the self-control of the Holy Spirit, Father, bring that where you would wish to conquer and be that Lord God who goes out to the front of the battle for us. Father, go before us, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So titles, titles, big, big, big time, very, very important. When you say Mr. President or the President of the United States, that title matters. That title is, is, is a name of distinction. It's a name of honor. It's a name of character. It's a name of all those things. Even circus performers, when you hear their names, it tells you very much about them. The human cannonball, cannonball is a guy who shoots out of a cannon, right? The, the great lion tamer is the guy who literally goes into cages with lions, right? The daredevil tightrope walker is the guy that goes up on the ropes without any help at all and walks on the rope. Even the bearded lady, you can see a picture in your mind, right? You can. That's why we have titles. Titles are there to give us a distinction. All right, now, now listen very closely here. As you begin to go on a journey in the I Am series with Pastor Jeremy and his team, listen, if God gets a title, that's an eternal title. That's an eternal title. It is who he is, it's who he was, it's who he will forever be. It distinguishes him not only as the one true God, but it distinguishes him from us as well. And so you're going to hear titles, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord God, my provider, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord God, our healer, Yah Nisi today, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. And it's going to be true from the very moment that you find it in the scripture described about God, all the way forward through the lens of scripture, all the way to eternity all the way to the return of Jesus Christ, all the way to setting up the new heaven and the new earth. That is going to be who our God is. And so what we're looking at today is not something that is a pill to help us just today. We're looking at a forever distinction about God. That's what we're doing. And we only find it in one passage of Scripture. What The Lord God, our banner, is mentioned twice, but the context of it is right here in Exodus chapter 17. So if you've got your Bibles, you've got your Bibles on your phone, if you've got your Bibles out there listening on the, pot, on the uh, live stream, hello to you, God bless you all. 
Um, please uh, get out your Bible, because when you get out your Bible, especially if you're watching on the live stream, you're paying attention. You're not making uh, soup or doing that extra uh, uh, cup of coffee or trying to find the last Pop-Tart in the cupboard. You're sitting down and you're looking at the Word. Focus with us here this morning. If God receives a name in the Scripture, that name must be consistent with who He is and what He does. God cannot honestly be called the Lord God wishy-washy. He can't. That's not him. Or the God of unicorns. He can't. Sorry, ladies. All right? But he can't be called that. There are, well. He cannot be called the God of only short men from the South because he's not just the God of Clint Eccles. Or the God of Dutch folks from the original boat only. Can't be called that. The name has to match his character. So when a God says that he's so loved the world. He's a lover of the entire cosmos. He's a lover of the whole world. He's the lover of everyone in here, and he's the lover of everyone out there. It has to be true. So who, the one who defeats sin and death, this saving warrior, this God, our battler that we're going to look f- from Exodus forward all the way to Jesus Christ and this great gospel, he's going to one day conquer every enemy that stands in the way of the glorious plan of God. He's going to make every enemy his footstool, and we're going to see his conquer of multiple enemies here this morning when we look at the Lord God, our banner. Now, I thought I would be really clever, and uh, two Tuesdays ago, in our family devotion at night, I was with my daughter and with my wife, and I said, uh, so, I want to start this off with a question, and I said, when, when was the first battle that God fought in the Scripture? All right? I thought I'd be really clever because I thought they would think about, you know, maybe they would reach all the way back to Abraham and fighting against the kings in the middle teens of Genesis or something like that. Or maybe they think about the first fights that Israel fought, taking Ai or Bethel or, or Jericho when they moved into the promised land. I thought that they would think that far. But my wife stunned me, and she said, when Satan fell from heaven, I went, wow, that is impressive, right? Somewhere there in Genesis chapter 1, we know that there was a battle that occurred in heaven and Satan fell because we meet him in chapter 3 of Genesis. He fell even as the creation was occurring or before the creation, he fell. The complete creation, he fell um, to the earth and God battled um, with him. That's impressive. My answer was going to be when God uh, took animal skins and covered Adam and Eve because that was the first time that a sacrifice of life was made to cover someone else's life, to give another another person protection in life. And so I thought I was really clever by using Genesis 3. But my daughter then says, oh, the first battle, I think, Dad, and correct me if I'm wrong, was in the mind of God. Because when God first thought of us, he knew, he foreknew in his mind that, he, that we would all eventually sin. And because we would eventually sin, because of that, his holy wrath would be turned against us and we'd be forever separated from him. And because he recognized that in his foreknowledge, he foreprepared to die for our sins. That he, he even planned with his son that he would do this. And I'm going, slow down, professor right? Slow down. I didn't take this seminary class. Let me write all this stuff down, right? How does it feel right now? How does it feel right now to know that the second that God thought of you the first time, he was ready to fight for you? He was ready to battle for you. Cricket got, Caroline got it right. She got it right. 
the first battle occurred within the mind and the heart of God when he said, I will, I will defeat every enemy that stands in the way of my glory coming to the people that I so love. Incredible. So this book of Exodus that we're going to look at this morning, it's revealing God to us as a deliverer. When we look at the book of Exodus, the, the major theme is deliverance, 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 many, many, many times over. Now, I set up these moon pies intentionally for you because over here would be, on this other side, would be the edge of faith. There's just no faith. There's no belief here. And over here would be the champion of total victory, right? And so, um, and we, we stand in this tension constantly, right? We believe in a God who delivers, but yet we, just like the Israelites, we see deliverance once, we see deliverance twice, we see deliverance six times over, and we struggle still over at this side where we have very little faith and very little belief. And here's the amazing thing is when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, he really doesn't spend a whole lot of time convincing unbelievers that scoff at him, that reject him, that, that deny him. More of his time is spent with those who believe on him so that he can move them from here all the way to over here so that then he can say, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. Right? So we have this God that the way he wants to present himself, even from Exodus all the way forward to the New Testament, he wants to keep revealing himself, not just, so, not, not just so that he would be known on this earth, but we by faith would grasp who he is. We'd incorporate that into our lives, and then we by faith would walk in obedience and faithfulness with him toward this incredible victory that's coming for us. And Exodus is teaching and revealing to us that God is a deliverer. Think about the deliverances before you get to Exodus 17. I'm just going to pass right by them right now. Moses is delivered from death as an infant. You see this beautiful picture of a loving mother that hides him in the bulrushes. And somehow providentially he is spared. Then Moses is going to escape arrest and punishment for murdering an Egyptian. To then even be called by God as a murderer into a redemption role and a rescue mission for all of the Hebrew people. Then Moses is going to tell God, I can't do that because of a stuttering problem. I mean, God's going to say, I've got Aaron here to cover that for you. And then in Exodus chapter 4, his father-in-law Jethro was going to go to him and say, look, all the men who wanted to kill you back there in Egypt, they're all dead now. So you're safe to go on your mission again. He's delivered yet again. And then with the ten plagues, it seems that there's going to be this kind of tug-of-war wrestling match with Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh's priests. But Pharaoh's heart hardens more and more. And with finally the Passover night, God delivers his people again with blood upon the doorposts for all the firstborns that are spared. While judgment, sweeping judgment, takes the firstborns of every person in Egypt. When you get to the 10th plague, you get an incredible picture of the gospel because right there in that plague, it isn't just the constraint and the revelation of sin and wrong and, and, and the call to deliver and to freedom. Literally, you have grace and mercy covering all of Israel, and you have right and true justice hitting Egypt. And that's where every one of us has once been under the cross. Under the vertical truth of his holiness and his holy wrath toward all of sin, but also the horizontal pieces of his grace and his mercy and his love. We've been there, and God perfectly executed both for us. He condemned the sin, he took the sin, 
He punished the sin with his own son, Jesus Christ. And then he set us free through his grace and mercy. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Wow. So it's the first glimpse of this incredible mercy that's occurring in the midst of sweeping judgment. While death brings a loud wailing in all of Egypt, the Hebrew people are delivered untouched. And do you know what happens? There's a pause. A pause to teach remembrance. A pause to say, hey, look, your faith can't even handle this in one sitting. So here, start, start to exercise a Passover remembrance every year. Start, start your exercises of faith, your disciplines to create events and moments in your life with your family and with your community to remind yourself of how great God is and how much he has fought for you. Celebrate the Passover. And so we might say, after we get past the ten plagues, and then we even go to the parting of the Red Sea where Moses raises up his hands and the sea parts, and again, perfect grace and mercy, the deliverance of all of Israel, the sweeping judgment of all of Egypt when the waters fall back in on Pharaoh and his chariots. And we might go, at that point, go, wow. God's a battler. God's a deliverer. But you get to Exodus chapter 14, and after all of that deliverance, after all of that groaning in their oppression in Egypt, instead of going to glorifying, the next place they go to, well, first of all, they go to groveling, crying out, we're going to get killed. We're going to get killed. Pharaoh's after us. They are in a panic, and they grovel to Moses. But then as soon as they're delivered, when they can't find enough meat, they can't find enough water, they grumble. And that's us, right, over here on this side of the faith picture. Low faith stamina, low faith energy running out. God, why would you send me out here when we had pots of meat back in Egypt? Moses, why did you take us out here when we're going to literally die of starvation out here and we're going to thirst ourselves to death? They've groaned. They've groveled. And now after all of this deliverance, they've grumbled. And you say, yeah, shame on me too, right? I've been there plenty of times on this side of faith. The angel of the Lord who had been in front of them in their deliverance all the way through the Red Sea, now that they're heading uh, into this wilderness territory, an amazing thing happens that you probably don't notice in verse 19. The angel of the Lord had been in front and the angel of the Lord now moves behind because there was an enemy Okay, that was before them, and now there was an enemy behind them, and the angel of the Lord moves back there. The Lord is always on the correct side of his people. When you think that you are hemmed in, when you think you are closed in, when someone comes and ambushes you from the front and left and to the right, God is always at the correct side of his promises, both deliverer and guardian. Think about the deliverance now, the manna that he delivers to them in the wilderness, the water from the rock. And then we get to Exodus chapter 17, the attack of the Amalekites, all right? Now, the Amalekites are the sons of Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau, all right? And we know that Jacob stole Esau's birthright, and there was some conflict between Jacob and Esau, and uh, there was definitely some resentment that passed down through the generations, through Amalek and the Amalekites. But more importantly, what we ought to know as we go into this passage here this morning is this, is that the Amalekites knew that Israel was coming into the promised land. The, the Amalekites knew some of the stories of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob. The Amalekites knew and still attacked. And not only that, when you look at the rest of Terah, you'll read more about the Amalekites and you'll find out that they literally came sneakily from behind, going after the weak and the weary, the women and the children. They attacked at the weakest point of the column of Israel. Sounds pretty satanic, doesn't it? Yeah. And it sounds like our enemy, doesn't it? He goes for the weakest front. That's what happened. We see God delivering again and again and again, decisively and miraculously. But we also see his people in what can appear to be constant peril, struggling to believe in the God of rescue. They have groaned in their oppression by Egypt. They have groveled and, groveled and cried for rescue in the face of Pharaoh coming with his chariots. They have even grumbled after being rescued, and God is still exactly on the side of Israel, groaning groveling, grumbling, while God is questioned, doubted, accused. And God's man, Moses, is questioned, doubted, accused. And the reader at this point might ask, how long, how many times must God prove himself to his people before they believe that he is truly the Lord God their banner? How many times? Moses hasn't even said it yet, but we're asking ourselves, how long, how long? Because the book of Exodus also reveals the human struggle to place steady faith in God alone. It not only reveals God as the deliverer, but it reveals to us our struggle to have steady, stable faith in God to conquer our enemies. Let's take a look at the passage this morning. Could you stand with me for the reading of God's word? God's word says in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. You notice there a contrast between God's power and Moses' weakness. One on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. How many memorials do you have? Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God bless you. You can be seated. Now, there are a lot of great sermons and a lot of great commentaries that will take this passage and teach you something about prayer. And that is true. All right? Personally, I think... The, the, the majority teaching of this passage is about faith in God as a deliverer. 
and about recalling that faith and making sure that we, we, we root that faith in our personal experience and circumstances as Moses has done. In fact, there's a lot of debate about a hand reached to the throne or a hand upon the throne of the Lord because there's three different hands that could be, um, that, that could be suggested there. All right, One could be the hand of Moses as if his petition all the way to that throne um, occurred. Another one could be the hand of the Amalekites there, all right? Another one could be the hand of, of all of Israel reaching to the throne of God and beseeching his power. And um, now this is personal. This is, yeah, I think this is a, 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 a fair and quality and conservative interpretation of, of the passage. But if you read the verses before and after, it's talking about the Amalekites and it's talking about how God will deal with his enemies. And so I would suggest to you that um, a hand to the throne of the Lord is a statement of practical disgust. Who would dare to come against the Lord God? Who would dare to battle against him? Will the Amalekites dare do that? And God swore that he would deal with the Amalekites from generation to generation and have war with them. In fact, that their memory would be wiped out. Right? So we see that. But with Moses, we also get a great lesson Moses was in dialogue with God about this. Again, the rest of Torah will help you to understand uh, what, what happened there. But Moses definitely was in dialogue with God, and this was a battle that God had called the Israelites to. In other words, they, even though they were snuck up upon, uh, the Amalekites came upon their rear and attacked them from behind. They were ambushed. God called them into the fight. So Moses does three things that I think are important that teach us about prayer and teach us about faith. And that is, first of all, his petition, right? His petition was a silent one. He didn't share any words out loud. He didn't go and stand up on that hill and shout out prayers or anything like that. He only held up the staff of God. He petitioned the people to see an instrument of God's power that had been used miraculously before. When you're in the next moment of desperation, where is your staff that calls you back to the last moment of miracle in your life? He holds up the staff of the Lord and makes that petition, both a petition to the power of God, but also for the people to see that miraculous power of the staff of Moses. But second of all, he has the right position. Moses is exactly where he is supposed to be in regard to the battle. Well, that's a big question for each of us too, isn't it? Are you right where you're supposed to be in regard to the battle? Are you fighting the right battles? Are you on the right battlefront today? Have you been battling for 10 years to lose five pounds when God would prefer that you go to the battlefront of prayer with your children? Or maybe to the battlefront of forgiveness with your spouse? Are you on the right battlefront? Moses is exactly where God wants him. And therefore, Moses is used by him. He petitions. He's in the right position, and he's got the right posture of confident dependence upon God. So much so that we even see that when his, in his weariness, he needs help from others to hold his hands up. Complete dependency upon God is a very safe place to be. He petitions. He's postured. 
He's positioned. He's postured correctly. Now let's ask, what happened right before Exodus 16, 17, and verse uh, 16, 17, and uh, chapter 16 through 17, 7? Well, the Israelites, they grumble about their provision. God can get us out of Egypt, but he cannot give us a full stomach. Quail, they eat all they want. Manna, and they eat all that they need. Water, they drink all that they want because God has provided for them. We just saw them grumbling yet again. So we know that these are people that are in this faith struggle and in this faith tension. And then we ask ourselves, now what happens in the passage here? Well, an outside enemy attacks. The previous enemy was on their insides. It was them. It was their thoughts. It was their doubts. And let me tell you something, when you're struggling with your fears and you're struggling with your doubts and you're, you're struggling with your confidence, when an outside enemy shows up, he's bigger than he really is. People ask us, How, how's it going down there? We know you get a lot of opposition uh, for going into the schools. I and mean, we, know, we know that you get a lot of opposition here. And I say, listen, listen, listen. The enemy is a lot smaller than most people think that he is. I mean, the world keeps on telling us the enemy is huge. We keep telling everybody the enemy is a lot smaller than you think he is, and the opportunity is much greater than you think it is. But an outside enemy attacks. The Amalekites, oh, their history with Esau, they, they want to rob God of his glory. Israel is called into battle even as they appear to be helpless, and the battle depends not upon Moses' strength, but upon God's deliverance. And the weakness of Moses serves to magnify the glory of God. And so we have a victory in the midst of a faithless people. They get the taste of near defeat over here. And their hopes and dreams being completely dashed, only then to experience complete deliverance and victory. Haven't you been there? Haven't you been literally teetering on the edge of a cliff of despair and desperation? Only then to be returned to the place of total victory. Why does God do that? Because he's working in the midst of a faithless people all the time. That's who he is. He's the Lord God, your banner. They get the taste of near defeat and their hopes and dreams dash, but then they experience victory. And that result tells them that God and God alone can receive credit for any and every victory. It is God who wins the salvation as he always does, says Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's God who wins. So that's what happens in the passage. Now what happens after the passage? After all of this groaning, after the groveling, after the grumbling, we see a man that moves to glorifying. We see the right response to the revelation of God, the deliverer, God the keeper of promises by Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. He doesn't even see any of these incidents since Moses left he didn't get to see the plagues. He didn't get to see the parting of the Red Sea. He didn't get to see the deliverance from the Amalekites. He didn't see the provision of manna and the water. But he goes to see Moses, and he gives glory to God just because he gets the report of what God has done. Moses tells the story of deliverance, and Jethro goes, Our God is amazing! It says, Then Moses told his father in verse 8, Father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. So Moses starts from with the beginning and takes it all the way through the story. All the hardship that had come upon them 
and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father, burnt an offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses and his father-in-law before they died. What's going on? A guy who was believing believed more. And because he believed more, he glorified more. And because he glorified more, God got the credit more. That's what happened with Jethro. And so you're seeing this contrast back and forth in the book of Exodus between holding on to the last string of faith and last string of belief. And by the way, God's still over here in your unbelief. Sorry, I'm supposed to stay inside the live stream thing. But he's over there. He's over there as well. When you come to the end of your faith, you do not come to the end of God. You do not. And so... Not only does Jethro glorify and give us a picture of what we ought to be doing with all of our deliverance stories and seeing them and seeing the greatness of our God, Jethro also collects other people who want to hang around a person like that. You can get anybody to grovel with you. You can get anybody to groan and grumble with you. It takes nothing to sit around at a table with others and say, what's this world coming to? Oh, can you believe the schools are doing this now? Can you believe the government is doing this now? It takes a Jethro to glorify God with you. So let's respond to the revelation of the Lord God, our banner, here this morning. First of all, we see this. God is a warrior that chooses to battle for the glory of his name. If God does not uphold himself, there is no way that he can uphold a people. It happens that because of who he is, that that glory is wrapped up now in us. Second Thessalonians 2, 14. And we have the glory of God in us. And so that glory is now in Christ our battler in us. It is now in Christ our battler. Jesus is very good at routing. He is very good at routing. Total Victory, deliverance. Remember the demons at Gennesaret? Gone. Remember the ten lepers at the village between Samaria and Galilee? Healed. Remember the lame man at the pool of Bethesda? Jumping around after 40 years being lame. Jesus is very good at routing. In fact, there probably is not a more succinct piece of theology in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, that talk about the route of God's deliverance through Jesus Christ. Hear the word of God. And you who were dead in your trespasses, what does that mean? Helpless. Not just here, but over there. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, Jesus took that. He paid that price. That stood against us with its legal demands. The law, literally, that was broken over and over again by all of us sinners in this world was satisfied because holy, righteous, sinless Jesus came and died for us. This he set aside, nailing it 
to the cross. At the cross point of his vertical holiness and his perfect justice, even his holy wrath, his grace, his love, and mercy. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And I want you to know that Paul is leaving us a hint, a suggestion of something that occurred all the way back in the book of Exodus when God made sport of the Egyptian gods. You think you have gods? Take a look at our God. You think you have life? Take a look at what life in Jesus Christ is like. Totally free, totally new, totally transformed, totally changed. That glory is now through Christ in us. Could you move the slide? There you go. That glory is now through Christ in us. But there is another thing that's going on, and it's going on in much the same way as it did in the Old Testament. We're still people. We are not immortal, we're not imperishable yet, and we still have our flesh that we're carrying around with us. And so we live in this tension of faith and obedience while God keeps proving his name. We keep living this. And you say, well, yes, you know what, Pastor Clint? Sometimes I'm fatigued in my unbelief. Sometimes I get so, uh, so I've heard so many people in the last two years say, oh, I wish I'd done that. I should have done that. Um, I can't believe I didn't do that. We all have moments where we have lost our faith stamina. We groan. We grumble. And then we have to grovel because of our faithlessness has worsened our situation. And we lose faith stamina when we take up our pride and we say, I can win this alone. We go from delivered to trying to be the deliverer. Nuts. We lose our faith stamina when we cannot wait on the Lord, but we want the victory too soon for us rather than for his glory. When do you know that you're living by faith? When do you know that you're taking another step, just six inches? When do you know that your faith is growing and you're living by it? Well, when you're fighting the right battles. When you're fighting the right battles, because if you're fighting the right battles, it means that you agree with the God of glory in the battles that he, he wants to fight. Husband, wife, mother, father, deacon, elder, leaders in the church, and everyone. Do you have the same cause as Jesus? What if, you, what if you literally just stopped and had a lunch with your spouse or had a lunch with, 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 with uh, um, uh, your children and just said, we're going to be for the cause of Christ in our lives. Let's pray and let's seek the Lord and make sure that we're fighting for the right cause. Because if you really want what God wants, guess what? You become a battleground for God. You become that. Now it's the holy conqueror of God in you. You make yourself available to God to build you by faith even as you go into battle. You become that person who prays, not just God defeat all of my enemies, but you say, God defeat me. That's how you know that you're living by faith. In Second Chronicles, you find the story of Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah tells Jeroboam in the northern tribes of Israel, you, you think you can withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hands of the sons of David because you have a great multitude and you've brought in some foreign gods for you? Don't do this. Jeroboam has 800 from the northern tribes of Israel. He has 800,000 men at this battle. Abijah only has 400,000 men. Not only that, 
Abijah gets ambushed from the front and from the back. So there's 400,000 back here, 400,000 in front, and Abijah is wedged in the middle. All right? And Abijah says, you're fighting a battle. You shouldn't fight. But Jeroboam goes and fights anyway. And yet when the men of Judah, who because of the leadership of their king who was faithful to their God, they raised the battle shout. At that moment when they raised the battle shout, at that moment when they exerted their faith, in that moment when they demonstrated that they were dependent upon God, not upon their own strength, Judah routs the northern tribes of Israel. 500,000 men are lost in that battle. All right? And the reason why that's significant and the reason why we ought to carry that forward into our lives in Jesus Christ is consider your choices. Your choices affect lives. And my time is up. <laughs> Almost. Your choices affect lives. Look, we all have stories of close calls, near misses, apparent defeats, and little faith. But even if you get to the end of your faith, you don't get to the end of God. You don't. So let's bring it to our neighborhood and let's apply some things. And you're going home with homework today, all right? I challenge you this summer as a part of your family planning, as a part of your worship planning, to do these things. Identify your Amalekites. Identify your Amalekites. Who are your enemies? Not your felt enemies, okay? Not just your waistline or the sugar intake in your house. But what are the enemies that literally rob God of glory in your life? What are those enemies? Identify your Amalekites. Then size up your Amalekites. Say, this is true, this is honest. Be honest with yourselves. Be honest with your Christian community. Be honest with your small group. Be honest with your Sunday school class. This is the Amalekite that exists in my life. Heather and I have Amalekites every day of our lives. And we, we, just this morning we prayed for some of the Amalekites that were in our lives. And we said, God, defeat them. We can't do it. We need you to do it. Identify your Amalekites, not so they get bigger, but so that your faith cries out to God in dependence to make them smaller. Second of all, permit God to choose and conduct your battles. Permit God to choose and conduct your battles. What are the battles that you are fighting that God has never called you to? Jeroboam lost 500,000 men by fighting a battle that he was never called to. Gideon thought he should not be a battler, and God said he was. Even the disciples discouraged Jesus from going to Jerusalem to fight the battle over sin on the cross. We have some wrestling by faith with God to make sure that we're permitting him to choose and conduct our battles. Thirdly this, join God on his battlefield. Join God on his battlefield, right? Go, agree with God and with the holy zeal of God to accomplish the glory that he wants in your life. Are your enemies big because you're living small? Are your enemies big? One more Amalekite story. God said, I would battle the Amalekites from generation to generation, right? You go all the way to 1 Samuel, and David and his men have fought a separate battle. And while they were away from their camp, Amalekites come in and raid the camp and steal all of their women and children and all of their belongings. And they come back and they get news of this. 
They find out from a, from a, a, a runaway that, that all of this has happened, and the men turn on David and just get angry and resentful, and they grumble yet again. And David does one thing, one thing. He says, God, do you want me to fight this battle or not? He says, will, will, will you send me into this battle against the Amalekites? And God says, go and fight, for surely I have given them over into your hand. David goes and fights. Even though they had to leave 200 men behind, they were so tired, so weary. Come up, Pastor, you, you're doing the song. They're so weary and so spent that they had to stay behind. They win that battle. They only, not only get their women and their children back, but they get it all that belonged to the Amalekites. When you have property stolen from you by the enemy, God gives back even more. And the men who fought in the battle, they say, oh, no, there's 200 people. No, these sellouts, they, they don't get anything. They don't get anything because they didn't go and fight with us. They didn't earn the right to share in some of this booty. And David says, no, that's not how God works. That's not how God works. God, even when you can't do nothing, he's still got a gift for you over here. God's got a moon pie for you all the way from the east to the west. That's what he's got. And so, finally this. Who are your Jethro's? Do you got a Jethro? Do you have a Jethro? Do you have somebody that you literally tell great stories of God's deliverance and they go, Brian, yes! I'm celebrating that with you. In fact, like, let's, let's, let's every year have a dinner and have a party to celebrate that. You know, your salvation. Do you, have, do you have Jethro's in your life? Anybody can groan. Anybody can grumble with you. But do you have a Jethro? Do you have somebody that's willing to enter the fight with you? My wife has been protecting this mother duck at our house for over a month now. And I get text messages for her when I go out to my car. She says, you be careful backing out because this mama duck's got her eggs right up against the wall of the house and you run over that duck, you're going to answer to me, bubba. <laughs> and one time I'm, I'm, I'm threading my weed whacker in my garage and she says, what are you doing with that weed whacker? And you know, you know when you know the right answer but you know that the right answer is the wrong answer but you still say the right answer? I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go weed whack. And she goes, not near the mother duck you're not. The Lord got our banner. It's who he is. It's who he is now. It's who he is forever. God is a battler for you. He will always fight for you. Moses went from the called to the caller. When you get to Exodus 17 and he holds up that staff, he calls the people to faith. And then he gets a Jethro in his life. He called them to face what they were going to run away from. Leave your hidden, comfortable life with sheep, Moses, he's called to. Your marginalized significance because you mastered your own safety plan. And come with me. You played it safe. Now go and do what is unsafe. Go do what is unthinkable. Defying the most powerful individual in the Near East, Pharaoh of Egypt. And you're going to win. Because God's your battler. God's your battler. So, where's your heart? What does God say to you? How are you going to take what he's revealed in his word here this morning, incorporate it into your life? Will you go home and when you start writing down your stories of how God has defeated Amalekites in your life, 
Will you go home and identify those Amalekites? Make sure that God's choosing the battles and he's conducting them for you. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, now, even as we have time to reflect in this worship moment, speak in Holy Spirit, convince, persuade. Oh, God, we love you because when you first thought of us, you decided you would battle for us. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.